today, why Socrates thinks politics is absolutely deadly to philosophers, and why some of the people on Socrates' jury thought that he was deadly to democracy. This is Good in Theory. I'm Cliff Mark. In my experience, when I see people getting so upset about what other people are saying that they want to silence them, whether it's online or on TV or in private conversations or in the Supreme Court of the United States, when people are trying to silence each other, it's not usually just about impiety or about skepticism. Usually, it has something to do with politics. And the same is true of Socrates' trial. Politics is a big part of the story in Socrates' case, and that's what I'm going to talk about today. I want to tell two sides to the story. We'll start with Socrates, who says he's just an innocent philosopher who's being unfairly swept up in a bunch of political drama that he never wanted any part of. And Socrates argues that politics makes people paranoid and irrational and dangerous, and that the only way that philosophy can survive in the city is if politics and philosophy are kept completely separate. Then, in the second half of the episode, we're going to change perspectives. We're going to ask, if you were in charge of politics, what kind of situations would you have to be in to actually justify using censorship? And then we're going to ask if Socrates' case was one of these situations. And all of this is going to involve filling in some historical context, because there was a lot going on in Athens politically that Plato doesn't mention in the text of the Apology, but it's still important to understand why Socrates' fellow citizens may have seen him as actually dangerous. So we're going to get to all of that, but let's start with Socrates. You may remember that in Socrates' defense speech, he makes this brief but cranky critique of politics in which he says that the reason that he never got involved in politics is because he cares about justice, and if he got involved, they would have killed him a long time ago. And he cites two personal examples of him getting into trouble with politics to support the claim that the entire political world is so messed up that anyone who cares about justice has to stay far away from it. And the first of the two examples we can call the trial of the generals. This one happened after there was a big naval battle between Athens and Sparta. And Athens won the battle, but they did lose a lot of ships, and that meant that there was still a ton of sailors bobbing around in the sea holding onto planks and stuff. And normal practice at the end of the battle is to sail around and pick up all the guys in the water and bring them back to shore with you. But the guys in charge, they saw a storm coming, and they decided to leave the survivors to drown and sail back to shore to avoid risking the whole fleet. And now, we don't know how necessary this was. Scholars today still debate whether they really had to go back or they could have tried to save the sailors. But the people in Athens, when they heard about this, they were mad. Just leaving the sailors who survived, who just risked their lives, to drown alone in the sea, this sounded really bad. And there may have been a class angle because the 
sailors in the Athenian navy, the guys who rode the ships, were generally poor. They were from the common classes. Whereas the generals who made the decisions, they were usually very posh. Anyway, the people in Athens were mad as hell, and they wanted to punish the generals. They recall them back to Athens to stand trial. Two of them just run away. But six of them go back, and they start trying them. And on the second day of debate, someone just decides, hey, I want to put a motion to put all of these generals on trial at once because we know they're all guilty. We know what they did. There's no reason to spend a whole bunch of time trying them individually. And this is where Socrates comes in. He just happened to be serving as a magistrate in court that day. He had his name pulled out of the hat. And when the guy in the assembly proposes to put all the generals on trial at once, Socrates refuses to put the motion to a vote on the grounds that collective trials are illegal in Athens. And then the assembly, they get mad. They say, against the law? You think collective trials are against the law? How about this? How about we put you on trial too, Socrates? How do you like that? And in the end, they don't put Socrates on trial, but they overrule him and they try all the generals and convict them and execute them. And Socrates, he thinks this is an example of where trying to do the right thing, caring about justice, will just get you into trouble in public life. And the second example that Socrates gives is the arrest of Leon. This time, it's not the Democratic Assembly in charge. It's a small group of oligarchs who had done a coup and who had taken over the Athenian government a few years before Socrates' trial. I'm going to talk about them a lot later, but for now, you just need to know they were a bunch of jerks and they were getting people involved in arresting a bunch of citizens to purge them or to expropriate their property or to do all sorts of nasty stuff. And one day, they call Socrates. They call Socrates and four other guys, and they tell them to go arrest a man named Leon from the town of Salamis so they can kill him and take his property. But Socrates, he's Mr. Justice. He wants to do the right thing. He thinks this is kind of wrong, so he just stays home, and he lets the other guys go arrest Leon. So he disobeys what he takes to be an unjust order. And he doesn't actually get into trouble for it, but he uses it as an example and says, you all know I would have gotten trouble for it if the government of the oligarchs hadn't fallen before they could come after me. And so these two examples are meant to illustrate how politics works and why it's so dangerous for philosophers. And I think that Socrates, when he puts these examples in his defense speech, he's not just making a random rant against politics. He's also hinting that maybe the same dynamic that got him into trouble in those two examples is also at work in the trial. So what, according to Socrates, makes politics so bad? The first thing I want to say is something I've mentioned before, but I think bears repeating. And that is that this is a critique of everyone. Today, it's different. Because today, when people criticize politics, they might be criticizing a kind of separate world that just happens in the capital that's full of crooks and grifters and psychopaths. Like, you might think that Washington, D.C. is a swamp, but that the American people as a whole is still good. The critique is made from outside looking at a different world of politics. And you might have a theory for why politicians are different. Maybe 
only psychopaths are attracted to it in the first place, or maybe there's something about the process of winning that winnows out all the decent people or corrupts people. But whether or not it's true today that politicians are a breed apart from the rest of us, it's definitely not true in Athens. Because Athens was a direct democracy. It was just the common people, the regular citizens, were the politicians. They were the ones in the assembly making the decisions. So when Socrates criticizes politics, he's not criticizing a separate elite. His argument is about how regular people get when they have politics on the brain. And I think what he's saying is that when people are doing politics, they're in a whole different mindset than when they're doing something else, like when they're doing philosophy, for example. So if you're in a philosophical mindset and a question arises about what to do in a given situation, you have a two-step process. Step one, you start trying to figure out what's the right thing to do. And the way you figure out what the right thing to do is you discuss it. You try all sorts of different ideas. You argue about them. You test them. You use reason. You do philosophy on them. And the aim is to get to the truth. And then once you figure out what the right thing to do is, then you do the thing. Now, Socrates is so good at philosophy and coming up with objections and questions and qualifications that a lot of the time he never gets to step two. That's just a philosopher problem. But sometimes it's obvious. For example, it was obvious to him that he shouldn't do a collective trial for the generals and he shouldn't go arrest Leon. The political mindset, on the other hand, is more interested in step two, they want to do the thing. And this is not necessarily that people in politics don't care about justice. The people who wanted to kill the generals and who threatened Socrates, they probably felt very strongly that they were in the right and they had justice on their side. It's just that when people are in the political mindset, usually they're already pretty sure what the right thing to do is. They feel that they've figured out step one and they're focused on step two, which is actually making it happen. And when you're at this stage in the process where you're sure what the right thing to do is and you're trying to make it happen, and you look at other people, you change how you look at them. You don't look at them as someone with a new and interesting idea that you should discuss. You're looking at them and you're thinking, who's with me and who's against me? And I am extrapolating a little bit from the text but I don't think my reading is too far off from what Socrates is implying. I think of the political mindset as Socrates makes it out to be as a kind of Terminator vision, right? The Terminator sees the same world as regular people, but he's always scanning for things that are relevant to the mission. And in this case, scanning for potential enemies to eliminate. And so you look at Socrates and you don't look at him as someone who wants to discuss justice with you. When he disagrees with you or disobeys your orders, that's the sign that he's an enemy. When Socrates refuses to put the generals to a collective trial, the people in the assembly, they don't see a principled magistrate trying to do his duty of upholding the laws. They only see that he's resisting their will. And that must mean that he's taking the general's side. And why would he do that? Probably because he wanted to drown the sailors and he doesn't care about the lives of the common Athenian soldier and he deserves to be tried to. And Socrates figures the same thing would have happened when he declined to go arrest Leon. The people in charge would not see 
a conscientious objector. They'd see someone who was being insubordinate and who was rebelling against them and who probably deserved to be punished. But the difference between the political viewpoint and the Terminator is that for all his violence and murder, the Terminator is still pretty calm. Whereas in politics, people seem to be very emotional. And in particular, they're driven by fear and anger, fear of enemies and anger at anyone who opposes them. So Socrates thinks that the political mindset is driven by emotion, paranoid. It just takes its own concerns and anxieties and worries and it projects them on the world. And that's all it can see. And this is why Socrates thinks that politics and philosophy can never get along. Because philosophy requires that you follow the argument and you look for the truth and you have to argue and test hypotheses and you have to disagree. But the political mindset, it will always register disagreement as opposition and opposition as a sign of an enemy and then it will initiate the termination protocol. So according to Socrates, Philosophy and politics do not mix. One more thing that I think Socrates is expressing through his use of these two examples that's also really easy to miss is that the political mindset is partisan. Socrates, he makes a point of saying when he gives those two examples that one, the trial of the generals, happened when the Democrats were in charge. And the other, the arrest of Leon, happened when the oligarchs were in charge. And that's easy to really just not notice, because when we think of Athens, usually we think of a democracy. So who are these oligarchs? Well, I will be talking a lot about the democratic-oligarchic split later in this episode. But for now, what you need to know is there were two factions in Athens, and there had been a lot of recent nastiness between them. And the Democrats were in charge at the time of the trial. And a lot of them may have suspected Socrates of being in league with the bad guys, in league with the oligarchs. And Socrates knows this, which is why he makes a point of giving one example from each side, right? He's saying, I'm an equal opportunity offender. And so the implication is that there is this polarized political situation in Athens and he knows that people are very suspicious and they're seeing their enemies everywhere, perhaps even in Socrates. If you share Socrates' view that politics is paranoid and partisan and dangerous to all people of integrity, then one response might be to try to change it. You might say, politics in this country is broken and it's time to fix it. But not Socrates. He seems to think that this is just how politics is, and so there's no point in trying to reform it. He says, if you want to survive as a philosopher, if philosophy and politics are going to coexist at all, you just have to keep them completely separated. If you're a philosopher, if you even seriously care about justice, Socrates says you have to lead a private life. Now today, just a note when we distinguish between public and private today, we mean something slightly different, usually, from what Socrates is saying. So today, private usually means behind closed doors. In your bathroom or in a store change room or something like that. And public is everywhere where you have to wear pants, basically. 
But when Socrates or most political theory people, when they distinguish between public and private, they mean something slightly different, where public has to do with politics, like public life, public office, that kind of thing. If you're a famous celebrity and TMZ is always hiding in your backyard and taking photos of you and showing them to everyone, but you aren't involved at all in politics, that would still count as a private life, even though you don't have any privacy. Anyway, Socrates, he just accepts the fact that the world of politics will absolutely chew up anyone who is seriously concerned with truth or justice, and his proposal is, you guys do your politics up in the assembly, in the courtrooms, and I will stay down in the marketplace, and I'll do my philosophy there. I'll leave you alone. You leave me alone. These are totally different activities. And that strategy worked for most of his life until one day it didn't. So the way Socrates sees it, he's just minding his own business, doing philosophy in the agora, and these swivel-eyed political loons come down from the assembly and they haul him into court on some paranoid theory that he's the secret political villain because they cannot grasp that he's just there talking abstractly about justice. And Socrates is like, I would very much like to be excluded from this narrative, one which I never asked to be a part of. And this basic idea of people minding their own business, doing their own thing, and then getting swept up in some political drama coming from paranoid people running around looking for enemies to deal with. There's a ton of examples of that kind of thing. There are obvious high-level political examples that just jump to mind. For example, take America. I choose America because that is the country in the world that makes the biggest deal of free speech. But even they get a little censorious and persecute sometimes. And when they do... Socrates' critique of the political mindset can sometimes be useful for understanding what's going on. If you think of the Red Scares in the 1920s and the 1950s when the American government was so scared of communists that they felt they had to spy on everyone and exile Charlie Chaplin and that kind of thing, it made sense to a lot of people then. Nowadays, most people look back and think that the government was overdoing it a little bit. And the problem was that the authorities, they weren't just seeing legitimate political disagreement. They had politics brain, and they were seeing Soviet agents hiding everywhere. And of course, there's plenty of examples the other way around, where communist governments get paranoid and start persecuting dissidents in their own countries. And if you're into First Amendment stuff, you'll know that a lot of times when the American Supreme Court is more friendly to censorship and more willing to restrain free speech. Oftentimes, it's in the context of some war or other, when they've got enemies on the brain. So there are definitely examples of governments going overboard with the political mindset. But it's not just governments. Socrates is talking about how everyday people get when they've got politics on the mind. And I think you see the same dynamic today. So you hear this a lot from comedians, for example, when they complain about political correctness, and how you can't joke about anything anymore without someone taking it the wrong way. They feel that people are coming into what they're doing in the comedy club and bringing all sorts of political assumptions and fights along with them and interpreting what they're doing in that light. 
And I've had experiences myself where I'll say something that I think is relatively innocuous or unrelated, but then I'm accused of perpetuating some kind of mainstream media conspiracy to help Justin Trudeau destroy gender using 5G towers or something like that. And I'm exaggerating here, but I think you'll know what I'm talking about. When people have a strong political narrative in their minds, it's really easy to interpret everything that they see in light of that narrative. And there is almost nothing I can think of that is too trivial for at least some subset of people to get politically upset about it, and then to start using that thing as a marker for who's with them and who is an evil villain who must be stopped. So I've seen people get angrily political about Christmas songs, haircuts, chicken sandwiches, the breasts on their video game being too large, and the breasts on their video game being too small. Literally anything. And if this all sounds crazy to you and you don't know what I'm talking about, you lead a blessed life and I would recommend that you stay away from the internet. But if you're curious, go on Twitter, start reading comment threads, and you will find that there is no subject so trivial or apolitical on earth that there are not people calling each other Nazis over it. And if you're there to have a political debate and to explore the political dimensions of everything, or if you want to publicize your cause and it's important, that's great. Lots of discussion. That's what comment threads are for. But if you're trying to do anything else, if you're trying to do comedy or enjoy a video game or a football game or a Chick-fil-A, or if you're trying to teach virtue to the young men of Athens, all this politics stuff can be annoying and sometimes downright dangerous. And this is Socrates's basic critique of politics. It's a critique of an outsider. He says, politics is stupid. It's just obsessed with its own anxieties and internal battles, and it's imposing it on the rest of the world. And that makes it totally miss the point of what's going on around it, but also makes it really dangerous to people who just don't want to get involved. And of course, this is the viewpoint of a man who feels he's done nothing wrong, that he was just minding his business, doing philosophy, and then got into trouble by a paranoid, oversensitive, politics-brained mob. And I think the viewpoint is easy to understand, because most people I know have never participated in politics beyond voting, reading, maybe doing some volunteer stuff, maybe even being part of a political party. But like, few people I know have been actually a part of a ruling assembly with real responsibility. So I think it's easy for most people to imagine themselves in Socrates' politically uninvolved position. And from that position, his critique of politics looks pretty persuasive. But now I want to shift viewpoints. I want to step out of the position of the persecuted philosopher, and I want to try to consider what the political mindset might look like from the inside. Hi, this is a long episode today, so if you wanted to press pause and finish later, now would be a good time because it's a natural break in the episode. Also, this episode is brought to you by Patreon sponsors Keisha and Brittany. 
Thank you for your support. It means a lot to us. And since we're here, I'd like to remind you to share the pod with anyone you know who is interested in philosophy or politics or Plato or podcasts. And if you have any questions or just want to reach out, we're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Good in Theory Pod, or you can email us at goodintheorypod at gmail.com. And all of the links are on our website, which you could probably guess is goodintheorypod.com. Now, let's get back to political mindsets, censorship, and why some people actually thought that Socrates was a danger to Athenian democracy. First, I'd just like to say that I personally do not have a problem with people applying a political viewpoint to any of the things I mentioned above. If you want to talk about the political and ethical implications of a chicken sandwich or a Christmas song, I'm here for that. That's what we do here. I think that most things have at least some political dimension that's worth talking about. It's just that if that's all you want to talk about ever, you're likely to annoy some people. In any case, I don't want to start with the small stuff. I want to take a step back from Socrates' philosophical viewpoint and ask the pretty big question of, if you are in charge of politics, what's your job? Say you're the queen, you're the prime minister, you are a concerned and active citizen. What are you trying to accomplish? Obviously, this is a big and abstract question, and I can't answer it in its entirety. But I think that one of your basic duties, if you're in charge of politics, is security. You want to keep the city safe from disasters, from external enemies, and from internal threats. Your job is not really to discover the abstract truth about justice, which can be defended against the most rigorous philosophical critiques. That's philosophy's job. That's what Socrates is doing. As a politician, your job is, at a minimum, to stop the people in the body politic from killing each other en masse. It's about keeping the people safe. The good of the people is the supreme law. And the political viewpoint is different from the philosophical viewpoint because you have this different goal. And in the course of pursuing your people-protecting duties, you may sometimes find it necessary to use censorship which is a tool that is rarely useful in philosophy. And so one instance, when it seems reasonable to me to censor people, is when they're doing hate speech. Most countries, and I say most countries because the United States is a partial exception, but most countries, and even those that think that freedom of expression is very important, have some kind of ban on hate speech. And that's because... They've looked at the big atrocities in the past, like the Holocaust and other genocides of civil wars, and they've noticed that before each one, you always find hate speech. You find newspapers saying that some groups of people are subhuman, radio broadcasts saying to go kill the cockroaches, stuff like that. And so I think that it's perfectly reasonable to decide collectively as a society or as a leader that you want to ban that kind of inflammatory speech. And I think that's true even if the person who's doing the hate speech isn't explicitly telling people to go kill each other. Because if you put enough hateful propaganda into the world, 
the people who are hearing it are going to connect the dots and they're going to take action themselves. You're just paving the way for the moment when people actually are ready to get violent. Imagine you're in charge of a country where there's a long history of rampant anti-Semitism and violence, and you find someone passing out flyers that say Jews are rats and they've taken over world banking and they drink Christian babies' blood and so on and so on. I think this is a time where the political mindset is appropriate. The stakes are high. There actually is likely an enemy who's a danger to society. So the philosophical viewpoint is not appropriate here to me. The appropriate thing to do is not to challenge these anti-Semitic pamphleteers to a debate in the free marketplace of ideas. You don't print up another flyer that says, well, in fact, genetic science has proven that Jews actually share more DNA with human beings than with any vermin species. No. Taking the philosophical viewpoint and engaging these positions in discussion, that's the wrong move. Even if you make a better argument, which you will, you're probably not going to convince everyone. And the entire time, some people are getting more and more radicalized. The right move, in my opinion, is just to shut them down, because this isn't a question of philosophy. This isn't about debating the truth. It's a political question about shutting down dangerous propaganda before bad things happen. And I think that's especially true in very unstable contexts. For example, if there's been recent fighting, or if there's a lot of tension between groups and things might go off at any time. If you're sitting on a tinderbox of a country, you don't want people playing with rhetorical matches. Socrates, he tries to make it seem like people who take a political viewpoint are just naturally unreasonable and emotional and vindictive, and they're on a paranoid hunt for enemies. But that's not always true. Sometimes people who take a political viewpoint are genuinely concerned for the safety of the city, and they're looking for real enemies that exist, and they're trying to stop them before they cause a lot of harm. That's one of the main jobs of politics. At this point, you may be nodding, you may agree with me, yes, that there are imaginable situations where some speech is so dangerous that it should be controlled. But you also might be asking, what does that have to do with Socrates? Socrates is not a racist pamphleteer or a terrorist propagandist. He's a broke old man talking about virtue in the streets, right? Well, Socrates probably was just a broke old man talking about virtue in the streets. But, like I said, there was a lot going on politically in Athens at that time. And... Socrates didn't look completely harmless to everyone. And everyone who read the Apology when Plato wrote it, they would have been totally familiar with the context and they would read the book in that light. But we, a couple of thousand years later, we're not going to be familiar with what was going on in Athens. So I am going to take a few minutes and go outside of the actual text by Plato, the book, The Apology, and explain the context of the story. And that, I think, will help us understand what is going on in the book and why people were so worried about Socrates. So, earlier, I mentioned how Socrates purposely gave an example of him running afoul of both the democratic government in Athens and the oligarchic government to try to prove that he was offensive to both sides, that he wasn't on any one of those sides. So let's talk about the democratic and oligarchic factions in Athens. 
Athens was a democracy. That's how we know it. It was kind of the democracy, the most democratic democracy that ever democratic. But it wasn't always so. Athens had an oligarchic past, and during the democratic period, there was always an oligarchic faction who opposed democratic reform. Here is kind of a simplified timeline. About 40 years before Socrates was born, Athens became a democracy. It wasn't very, very democratic, but that's when it first became what you could call a democracy. And gradually, it became more and more democratic. When Socrates was born and he was growing up, the basic story of Athens is that it was getting more and more powerful. It was getting rich. It was building an empire. It was having a civilizational golden age. It was just killing it in the game. And the whole time, the city was also getting more and more democratic, meaning that politics was more and more inclusive. Whereas before, it was just rich people who could participate. The property qualification for natural-born Athenian males to participate went down and down. And Pericles, he was the great democratic leader who passed lots of reforms, meaning that poor people could serve on juries, they could actually get involved in running the city by participating in the assembly or serving as magistrates. But this entire time of transformation, there was always some people who opposed the democratic reforms, who preferred the old ways of doing things. Oligarchy, it's a word that means government of the few. And the oligarchic faction in Athens thought that democracy was a mistake and that the city would be better off if it was run like in the olden days by a smaller group of wealthier citizens. But during the period where Athens is just getting rich and kicking ass all over the Mediterranean, you don't hear too much from the oligarchic side. And if people do complain about democracy, that might just sound like regular people complaining about the government or even useful opposition, right? Because there are always people who are going to complain about the government, and it's healthy to have critical voices to hold governments to account. But this oligarchic faction, when things start going worse for Athens, they become more than just critical voices. Here's basically how it goes down. One of the last things that Pericles, the great democratic leader, does before he dies is to start a giant war with Sparta. And this war is going to go on for 30 years. It's going to completely exhaust both cities, kill a massive portion of the population, and Athens is going to lose. And there's also this ideological angle. Athens is the big democracy in that area of the world, and they ally with other democracies, and when they take over a city, they tend to impose democratic governments on them. And Sparta does the same for oligarchy. And so in the second half of the war, I want to cover a few things that went wrong in Athens that are relevant to the story at hand. So the first big event that I want to mention is the Sicilian Expedition. The Sicilian Expedition is this huge mission to Sicily to help out some allies, and it turns out to be a complete fiasco, a catastrophe. Athens loses a bunch of their army and navy, and a lot of people in the city, they thought that this defeat might lose them the war. They eventually rally and they go on to fight for over a decade, but people saw it as a major turning point. And after that, after that big defeat, people in Athens were upset, and especially the oligarchic faction. They started thinking, look, these Democrats are going to get the whole city killed. 
we need to take over. They stage a coup. They overthrow democracy, and they install an oligarchy called the 400. This was 12 years before Socrates' trial. Now, the 400, this regime was unstable from the beginning. It doesn't last very long. But the fact that there was a coup probably changes the mood in Athens because before the coup, when you see people who criticize democracy and praise the old ways of oligarchy, you might just see them as complainers or as reasonable opposition. But after an actual coup, when you know there's some people out there just waiting for the chance to overthrow democracy and disenfranchise all of the poorer citizens, that might change your view of things. When people praise oligarchy, it's going to look less like critical discussion and maybe more suspicious, more like they're trying to build support to overthrow democracy. And you can imagine that might make things more tense, more polarized. And it gets much, much worse. Because five years or so before Socrates' trial, that's when Athens loses the war. Sparta wins, they roll up on Athens, and... They decide, generously, not to just kill everyone in the city. Instead, they say, Athens, you get to live, you get to remain Athens, but you have to tear down your city walls because we don't want you holding up in there again and then harassing everyone with your navy. And you have to change your government because ever since you became a democracy, you've been an imperialist pain in the ass to everyone in Greece. So we're giving you an oligarchy, and we're giving you an oligarchy that's friendly to us, Sparta. And so they install a regime that eventually got the nickname the 30 Tyrants. And as you can imagine, you don't get a nickname like that for sober good government. They were only in power for eight months, but they made the most of it in terms of purges, atrocities, and all-around tyrannical behavior. They killed something like 5% of the Athenian population at the time, so 1 in 20 Athenians dead. They confiscated a lot of property from rich democratic partisans. They exiled people from the city. It was a bad, bad reign of terror. And that was the regime that sent Socrates to round up that guy Leon to have him killed. Anyway, everyone hates them. Within a few months, there's this democratic resistance movement, and they overthrow the oligarchs. They do a few counter-purges just to make sure they stay down. And they restore democracy, which is great. But at this point... You can imagine the atmosphere in Athens. They just lost a big war. The city is ravaged, exhausted. They've had two oligarchic coups in seven years. They've had this reign of terror, tit-for-tat purges. There's two factions who've been doing really bad stuff to each other. Neighbor-on-neighbor violence. Just a very mistrustful atmosphere, I imagine. Earlier, we talked about philosophical and political mindsets. And I think there are times and situations where it makes more sense to lean towards one of these mindsets or towards the other. And this, in Athens, this is a situation where I think a political mindset is appropriate. The stakes are high. There's been a lot of recent violence. There have been conspiracies. There might be more. And so I think if there was ever a time in Athens to keep your eye open for troublemakers, this is one of those times. It's one of those times, I think, also that those political emotions, fear and anger, would have been high, and where paranoia would have been common, and you don't know when things will go off again. 
And I think the people in Athens recognized this. Because their next move was to have an amnesty. They knew that people would be really tempted to settle political scores over the stuff that happened under the 30, and they knew that if people started settling scores, then the other people would get worried, they wouldn't know who's next, and that would motivate them to form more conspiracies. So to end the cycle of conflict, they made a law, they made an amnesty that basically said, we all did some shit last year, but we are going to let sleeping dogs lie. And this is the context for Socrates' trial. A huge 30-year-long war that Athens lost, a city laid low, a civil conflict between oligarchic and democratic fashions, including two coups, and a tense amnesty to try to keep it a lid on things. And a few years later, Socrates winds up in court. And a lot of people, and by people I mean scholars of classics, stuff like that, a lot of people think that his trial was low-key about politics that the reason that Socrates was executed is because a lot of people thought that, in a nutshell, he was an oligarchic agent who was radicalizing the youth. Of course, no one could actually say that at the trial because the amnesty meant that that kind of accusation was off-limits. So a lot of people figure that the whole impiety thing was just a cover for these political animosities. And they couldn't say it, but to illustrate how Socrates' political enemies might have argued for his persecution, we've brought back Zachary Amsleg, this time playing Fudgicles, the political enemy of Socrates. Men of Athens, Socrates wants you to believe that the reason he's on trial is that his philosophy is too smart for us and we're mad about it. This is ridiculous. I like philosophy. I send my sons to study with Protagoras. And I don't care if some unemployed old man thinks I'm dumb. Socrates is not here because of philosophy. He's here because he's been preaching oligarchy and radicalizing the youth. He's here because he's the intellectual mastermind behind the recent conspiracies that have torn Athens apart. If you want proof that Socrates hates democracy, all you have to do is listen to him. I've heard him comparing our citizens' assembly to a pack of drunken sailors who are about to crash their own ship. I've heard him argue that a small group of enlightened philosopher kings should rule over all of us. Does that sound familiar to you? It's exactly how oligarchs like the 30 tyrants justify their rule and their crimes. Now he says he's just down in the agora having harmless philosophical discussions. If that were true, then why can every disaster, every plot against Athens lead back to Socrates? Take Alcibiades, a beautiful boy from one of Athens' best families, full of promise. But Socrates took him under his wing, and we all know how that turned out. First, Alcibiades tricked the people into letting him lead the Sicilian fiasco. And when he lost, instead of taking responsibility, he defected to Sparta. And then... When he betrayed the Spartans in turn, he plotted the first oligarchic coup of Athens. I can't think of a single Athenian more corrupt than Alcibiades, and no man had more influence over Alcibiades than Socrates. And that was no coincidence. Critias, the man at the head of the 30 tyrants, was also a close friend of Socrates. How long's it been now? Five years? Every single one of you knows someone who died under that regime. 
You remember not knowing who was going to have their property confiscated the next day, who would be exiled from the city, or who would just be disappeared. You remember wondering if your neighbors were informing on you every night. Look at the facts. Our boys spend all day with Socrates, and he teaches them that democracy is an idiot's constitution, that all of our leaders are buffoons, and that only men with true philosophical education, the kind that Socrates alone can give them, deserve to rule. And soon enough, they're sharpening daggers and conspiring to overthrow democracy. It's happened twice in the past 11 years, and twice we've had to restore democracy and our rights. Citizens of Athens, we cannot risk a third time. It's time to stop Socrates for good. And that is how someone might make a political argument against Socrates. Of course, because of the amnesty, nobody could have actually used that in court. But I think that's the kind of argument that could have been on a lot of jurors' minds. And I don't know how convincing you found it. But the reason I made it up and the reason I spent all this time filling in the context about the history of Athens, it wasn't to try to prove to you that Socrates was a secret agent of oligarchy. It was to try to illustrate what the political mindset looks like from the inside and why even a person who isn't crazy might see Socrates in a bad light. So I want to conclude today's episode by coming back to that distinction I made between philosophical and political mindsets. If you wanted to approach this issue of Socrates' political role with a philosophical mindset, you'd have to ask, what is the right thing to do here? What is the true answer? First, you'd have to ask if Socrates' arguments really do promote oligarchy, or if maybe there's another interpretation for what he's been saying. Then you have to ask whether his arguments are even wrong, because maybe he's right that oligarchy is a better form of government than democracy. And it's just that the 30, that was a bad example of oligarchy. And then you have to ask if it's really fair to hold Socrates responsible for what some of his associates did. In other words, you'd have to go through all the step one stuff of figuring out what the right thing to do is. And that can take a long time. It can be pretty ambiguous. That's life in the philosophical mindset. But if you're on Socrates' jury, acting as a responsible Athenian citizen, you're probably in a political mindset. You're concerned with practical consequences. Your job is to ensure the safety of the city. You know there's an oligarchic threat. And you don't care about philosophically proving that democracy is better than oligarchy. You just want to prevent another conspiracy and coup and round of civil violence. And you're looking for people who might start trouble. And as an Athenian citizen, you'd be irresponsible if you weren't on the alert for that kind of thing. And honestly, I wouldn't blame you if you were feeling a bit afraid and angry. And you look at Socrates, and what do you see? Once again, I made that speech up, but all the historical facts in it are true. Socrates was tight with a lot of the major players in the recent troubles. He's known for going around saying oligarchic talking points. All the anti-democratic stuff that I put in that speech, I got that from things that Socrates says in the Republic. And yeah, Socrates 
says he's just doing philosophical critique, but maybe he's radicalizing people and just disguising it as philosophical critique. It's not like if he really was running oligarchy conspiracies, he was going to come out and say it. If you're on Socrates' jury, you have to go by circumstantial evidence. And a lot of scholars think that the circumstantial evidence against Socrates was enough to convince a lot of Athenians. And there are even ancient sources that say outright that the reason that Athens killed Socrates is because he corrupted Critias and Alcibiades. So it looks like a lot of Athenians did think that Socrates was an enemy of the state. But I'm not telling you that he was. They were wrong. Socrates really probably was just a philosopher trying to mind his own business. And that is the probably unsatisfying conclusion to this episode. On the one hand, I think that the political mindset in many situations is valid. I think it's important to be focused on practical consequences like preventing civil wars. And I think that it's natural when you're in that situation to be looking for enemies. And sometimes you're going to be right. You're going to find enemies. You're going to stop a dangerous agitator or a propagandist. But Socrates' critique is also right. Even people with good intentions can get caught up in the whole political thing and wind up going after an innocent person, like Athens did with Socrates. And Socrates seems to think this happens all the time. And maybe you could extrapolate the same thing to the cases of the political mindset in the modern world that we talked about, like... Maybe Charlie Chaplin wasn't a communist agitator. So is that our choice? Do we either have to give up looking for enemies and protecting the city or just accept that we are going to be persecuting innocents sometimes? Well, maybe there's some kind of middle ground. Maybe there's a way to complain about Socrates' pro-oligarchic speech and even to justify asking him to stop without inventing some kind of fever brain conspiracy with him at the center of it. And that is what I'm going to talk about next episode. I'm going to give the most reasonable argument I can in favor of executing Socrates, and I'm going to explain why you'll never hear that kind of argument in the real world. The theory fact for today is a short one about Plato's name. So Plato is not actually Plato's real name. According to Diogenes Laertius, Plato's real name was Aristocles, son of Ariston. And Plato is a nickname, and it comes from a word that means broad or wide. And we aren't 100% sure where he got it. But some people think that he got it from the breadth of his style, or from the breadth of his forehead. But Diogenes says that Plato was really good at wrestling, and the nickname Plato came from one of his gym teachers because, quote, of his robust figure. So it turns out that the name Plato means something like burly or big guy or thick boy. Thanks for listening. <laughs>